You can give people the truth, and it does not mean that they will turn to Christ. But it is still our responsibility, our duty, to do it anyways. And now for Fearless Faith, Courageous Christian. Good evening, everybody. I spent so much time trying to organize this sermon, particularly the introduction and wanting to start with a joke. I probably spent most of the last hour thinking of that, and I couldn't think of anything particularly funny relating to the sermon. But I'll start with a joke that I have pulled up here. It's not relating to the sermon, but it may put a smile on your face. It's simply, how are toddlers and those who attempted to build a tower to heaven similar? They all babble. (laughs) Something like to start us off. So I am George Bronner, and the title of my sermon today is simply Fearless Faith, Courageous Christians. Now, we live in a society that's oddly developed to the point where if you're a biblically believing Christian that verbally professes it and does not give five minutes of disclaimers before you do so, you're often labeled as hateful, evil, something along those lines. And it can be kind of scary to then profess as a biblically believing Christian or to even water down your biblical beliefs. So what do we do? Now, this sermon was a bit too long for time restraints. And because I spent so long trying to think of a joke, I didn't properly organize it. So I'm just going to go from most important to least important from what I had written. And firstly is simply, why the Bible? Now, it's a question that's very commonly asked, especially if you go off to college and you're in a professor's room and you say, I'm a Christian. You may see a smirk come on their face and they're potentially ready to try and break your beliefs apart. But the question can be asked in several ways. There's individuals that can be outright with it. Why do you believe the Bible? It has so many fallacies in it. Now, if an individual is outright with that, they're making a claim along with the question against the Bible. Ask them a couple questions back because the person who makes the claim has the burden of proof. So, firstly, what do they mean? And secondly, why do they think that it's true? I remember I was just simply having a Snapchat conversation with somebody. And that's all that I asked them. They had stated something along the lines of pushing for all religions, that all religions have some form of truth, but Christianity's wrong. And I simply asked them, why do you believe that's true? They left me all open and we never spoke again. (laughs) Now, there are longer answers depending on how it's asked. If they're genuinely curious, why do you believe that the Bible is true? Or they want to argue with you, but they haven't made a claim yet. Here's what Vody Bauckham answered. He stated, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Their reports supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Now that's a mouthful, and in the sermon, Why You Can Believe the Bible by Vody Bauckham, he dives much deeper into each portion, but I'm just going to summarize and add to it. But the simplest way to answer, if that's hard to remember, because I understand, is simply, I believe it describes the world as it actually is. That was according to Jay Warner Wallace. Could go for either or there. It kind of depends on your intentions in carrying the conversation further. 
Now, Vody went on to quote Charles Spurgeon because he wasn't necessarily trying to defend the Bible, but why he believes it. He states, I would no more defend the Bible than you defend a lion. You don't defend a lion. You just set it free. Beautiful. Now, see, another reason why he did this is because he wasn't planning to go to a higher authority than the Bible. If he did that, he'd be conceding that there, first of all, is a higher authority than the Bible. So he goes to it. He talks about the the various numerical things, firstly. Over 40 authors, various walks of life, most of them never even met each other. 66 different volumes over various topics, written over a period of over 1,500 years, over three continents, three different languages. That's a reliable collection. Now, it's not just the collection, but there's also archaeological evidence. Now, Christian archaeology and just archaeology in general is a pretty secular subject. But still, there have been 25,000 archaeological digs, and not one has contradicted the Bible. Now, something interesting about the Bible and its specific prophecies, a lot of the things that it pushes for is that it's falsifiable. Yet centuries, millennia have passed, and it hasn't been proven wrong. Continuing on, Hugh Ross in 2003 reported that there were about 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. Now, about 2,000 of them have been fulfilled to the letter with no error. Now, these aren't just predictable prophecies, stuff that we'd all expect to come true. He stated that the odds for all these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. Now, what that is, is 1 with 2,000 zeros written behind it. That is very clearly not something that's predictable by man's standards, especially for none of them to be wrong. And gotquestions.org, just a fun additional thing, is it's a Christian website. If you have questions, go there. Gotquestions, gotquestions.org. They found that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, fulfilled 300 of them alone. Continuing on, because that's just numerics. People will make various arguments against the Bible. They'll make various statements, and when they make them, they may feel super confident and prideful thinking that they've got you. But it's not quite the case. Some people will say that the Bible is not reliable because it's been translated so many times. Usually this is done deceptively. Why? Because the Bible is not translated from, say, Greek to English to Spanish to Chinese to Russian and so on and so forth. The Bible is translated from Greek to Russian, from Greek to Chinese, from Greek to Spanish, from Greek to English. It's always from the source. It's not lost over time. And I mean, even looking at the many different translations, if an individual has problems with continuity, they can always just download a software and compare it directly to the source text. Modern day technology has given us the best tools to properly and accurately translate the Bible. So if an individual states that, odds are they're trying to deceive you or they just don't know any better. Maybe both. And a fun question that Mike S. Adams asks people whenever they go along this chain is simply, name a single doctrine that has ever been impacted by a transcription error. Now, he states he's never heard anybody answer that. I've never heard anybody answer that. I can't think of an answer to it. Maybe you can, but I can't. Now, continuing on, another qualm that people tend to bring up is that they simply can't believe it because it was written by men and men may have made errors. It's kind of funny to hear a man say that. (laughs) If you can't trust it because a man wrote it, what can you trust? Why can you even trust you not being able to trust it? So that's a pretty simple response right there. 
Another, and this is one that's especially common and also especially silly, and it's that I have a scientific mind, so I just can't believe the Bible. That's because they're trying to use the scientific method to determine something historical as true. But for those with real scientific minds will recognize that you can't do that with history. You literally can't. See, the scientific method requires for it to be observable, measurable, and repeatable. You don't use that for historical documents and checking things like that. Instead, you use the evidentiary method. It's used in law and legal spaces. You ask about reliability, cooperation, internal and external evidence that supports these. Who are the witnesses? Is it falsifiable? And I mean, looking back to those 25 archaeological studies and seeing how not one of them contradicted, looking at the over 40 authors who likely never met each other, looking at the 2,000 prophecies so far that have been fulfilled to the word. That's a lot. <laughs> and lastly, on this, if you're just talking with somebody that really has no qualms against you or Christianity, don't put too high a burden on the Bible. Many times what people will say is that I believe it's the inerrant word of God, and I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I am saying is that if you approach evangelism, sharing the word and why you believe in the Bible with somebody, and you have the view that they have to believe everything in the Bible is true, off jump, in order to be a Christian, you're not going to get many lives saved. Continuing on, now on to where I originally intended to start. This sermon is one that I'm not really sure how to define in few words. But I can't help but notice that a lot of times Christianity starts to look a lot different when represented in people's lives and shown in the text. And I'm reminded of a study I read in a book a few months ago. It was a book published in 2007. I don't remember when the study was published, but it was written by George Barna. And it was a study looking at how many people in churches actually had Christian views. And back then... It was 60% of Christians in churches didn't actually have biblically aligned views. Thing is, it wasn't just the people attending the churches. It was also the pastors. It was 30% of the people that you would have up here in the pulpit claiming to be Christian ministers that did not have biblically aligning views. That was back then. I don't know if y'all know, but things have been progressively getting worse. Especially in the early 2010s, whenever you've got the boom of media and people that are charismatic and say what you want to hear can get in a lot more ears. Now, the thing is, oftentimes it's subtle. It's a half-truth. The issue with half-truths is that most of the time they're just straight-up lies. They say some words that they sound like catchy lingo. They sound like things that a Christian would say. And if you don't check it by the word, you think it's something that a Christian ought to say. Especially if an individual is a pastor, an individual in a pulpit that you assume is reputable and a solid authority for the word. See, these single, simple changes, they can be as simple as a single word, a major. Jesus is a way to heaven versus Jesus is the way to heaven. One God manifested in three ways versus one God manifested as three persons. God won't challenge you beyond what you can handle versus God won't tempt you beyond what you can handle. Single words, and if you weren't listening closely, you may have thought I was saying the same thing twice, just in different ways. But they both have very different meanings. Three ways versus three persons. That's modalism versus Trinitarianism. A way versus three ways. 
I mentioned that in my recent sermon, Pagan Christianity. It was my first point. You can listen to it freely on brothersoftheword.com. God won't challenge you beyond what you can handle versus tempt. It's just a misrepresentation of the word. The thing is also that many times we don't necessarily want to change even if we get called out for being wrong. Now, that's a psyche thing. Our brains literally abhor the acceptance or realization of being wronged, of being fooled, tricked, duped, or scammed. Our brains would rather double down on a falsehood than accept being wrong. Now, that's tough in these serious situations. And what doesn't help are three things in particular. Ego, of course, individuals in status, they usually don't like being talked down to as though it's not something they already know, even if they don't already know it. Number two, knowledge. Individuals that are experts. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I remember one time when I was preaching about Paul in debate, he was debating against either the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And he destroyed them so terribly that they wanted to kill Paul. That knowledge is something serious. It also feeds in the ego. And the last one is arrogance. Now, there's an effect called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's when people basically overestimate how much they know. There was a study, and there were three groups of people. One were experts, two were intermediate in knowledge, and three basically knew nothing. Now, one that was experts, they actually underestimated their confidence in their knowledge, interestingly enough. Two, there were intermediates, they were right on the mark. They knew what they knew, and they knew what they didn't know. And then three, way out of bounds. As a matter of fact, three, if I remember correctly, put their confidence in their knowledge known above two. They were way out of bounds. <laughs> and it's definitely an interesting effect, but it's also not something that's out of pocket based off of what the word has warned us about. When we look at 2 Timothy 4 verses 3 to 8 in LT, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. So the word warned us clearly. There will be a time where people won't seek the truth. Shoot, you could probably tell them the truth and they'll just ignore you and still seek that false teaching. And I mean, for individuals like that, there's just about nothing you can do. But even though the word knows that will happen, it still does not tell us not to spread the word. As a matter of fact, it tells us first and then tells us to go spread the word. We know there's going to be people like that. But it's still our responsibility to unapologetically and biblically spread the word. I was even thinking of some ways to start out this sermon. And I was thinking about starting with examples. For example, people nowadays will try and consistently say that the church and the state should be apart, that the Christian pastors and figureheads shouldn't be talking about political issues, that you can't legislate morality. Now, for starters, with the church and the state, completely out of context. What that originally was, was simply that there cannot be a federal representative religion. 
Interestingly enough, states can still have representative religions, but that gets into the specifics. And talking about not being able to legislate morality. That's ironic because that's just about what legislation almost always does, is legislate morality. <laughs> but, I mean, hey, neither here nor there. What's interesting especially is that when the world tells us these things, you'll find a lot of us bowing a knee. Because it's scary. Whenever you have a dozen people shouting at you not to do this and the word tells you to do that, you may just ignore the word. Especially if you don't have a strong reason why the word. It's scary. But that's why we have to be courageous Christians. And 1 Corinthians 16 verses 13 to 14 states, Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And do everything with love. There's no need for us to hate them. As I had mentioned in my sermon, love, the essence of evangelism. Though Christianity is on a decline, as in regards to how many people are practicing it, even a lot of the reasons why people left was because of lack of love within the church. Talking about your direct neighbor before you even go outside of the church to spread evangelism. Love the person that's next to you. Love the person that's in this building and love the people that are out there too. Spread the word unapologetically, but do it with love. It's scary. Many times it's hard to love, but that does not mean we're not led to do it anyway. Call upon Christ for your strength, because what's impossible with man alone is made possible with God. Continuing on, as Psalms 27 verse 14 states, Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. You may do a lot of evangelism and you may fail several times. As a matter of fact, I remember last year, I was sent through a phase where there were just a ton of people that the Lord was putting on my heart to evangelize to. And I kid you not, every single person that I evangelized to, not one of them came any closer to God. As a matter of fact, it wasn't reason or even immediate emotion. Every one of them had stated, that's reasonable. Several of them had stated, you know, that makes more sense than what I follow. But not one of them chose to come to Christ. The word predicted this. You can give people the truth, and it does not mean that they will turn to Christ. But it is still our responsibility, our duty, to do it anyways. Going on, beyond just spreading the word, there's also potential persecution. Now, persecution is a word that, again, can sound scary when being heard. But it's also something that's honestly a blessing in disguise. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12 stated, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Now, this persecution is honestly a lot lighter than what we could even experience in America. Now, those ancient prophets, those ancient evangelists were getting killed for their faith. Now people may just yell in your face, maybe somebody will sucker punch you, but you're at least not getting killed for this. Now, if you're in other nations, say nations in the Middle East, North Korea, etc., that's a whole different story. But even still, with a lot of persecution in America, it deters a lot of people, but the word says it's going to bless us. Now, no good deed, no wholehearted deed intended for pleasing and glorifying God will go unrewarded. Now, don't get me wrong. You may not see it here. You'll probably see the pain of it here, but the blessing awaits you for eternity. It may not be something that you want to hear. It's probably not something that you want to do. But there's a few questions that I have to ask you. 
And the first is, do you believe the God of the Bible is truly God? Now, this is the first question before I can ask anything about action, anything about doing, about abiding by the word of God. Do you believe that's truly God? And number two, will you do what God tells you to do? Now, this is a bit of a broad question, so the third one will make it a bit more specific. Will you put pleasing God before pleasing yourself? There's a lot of things that I know you probably don't want to do in the word. As a matter of fact, you may not even want to read the word. But still, will you put pleasing God before oneself? The word calls us to love others as we love ourselves. The word calls us to evangelize even in a time when people will not listen. The word calls us to do these things even if we'll suffer persecution and to still be glad while doing it. Not even to complain, but to be glad to rejoice whenever we're suffering that persecution. The word calls us to do a lot of things that we probably won't do. So will you put pleasing him before pleasing yourself? The last things that I'll state are a couple of verses. Psalms 118.6 states, The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Fearless faith. And 2 Timothy 1.7 states, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Courageous Christians. I'm George Bronner. This is my sermon. I hope that you've enjoyed and that you've learned from it. Evangelize, love, and be glad in persecution. Have a great night, everybody. I mentioned that in my recent sermon, Pagan Christianity. It was my first point. You can listen to it freely on brothersoftheword.com. You are listening to brothersoftheword.com. This was the message titled Fearless Faith, Courageous Christian by George Bronner. This message is number 4107. That's 4107. To listen to thousands of free messages or to send this message number 4107 to a friend, go to brothersoftheword.com. If this message has been a blessing to you and you would like to help support this ministry, go to IWantToGive.com. That's IWantToGive.com. Listen to BrothersOfTheWord.com often because, brother, you need the word. Oh,